0: Hi folks, this is Jack Spirka with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is May the, April. It's April, Jack. It's April. It's freaking April. April the 6th, 2017. I keep jumping to May. Maybe because tax day's over and I just like being past tax day. I don't know. Anyway, uh, what's today? Today is Thursday. That means it's time for a listener call show. This is where you call in at 866- 866. 65, think, 86665THINK. Um, last week I said I did not have many calls, and boy, you guys responded. So, if you don't hear your call today, it's not because uh, I didn't use it. I think I only got rid of one today that I couldn't understand the person so if you called in early you know right after last week's show it would have been one of those if you don't hear it today it's probably you and it wasn't that your question was bad as I wasn't able to hear what you were saying. I have two other ones that uh, I sent off to expert council members so if you don't hear that one answered uh, um, one was on a welder related to a generator I sent to Mr. Harris And the other was on Lespedeza that I sent to Mr. Ferguson. So um, those two I decided to kick to expert council members. I just thought they would be better. But if you called in early last week, I don't know what your call was about. That's why I can't tell you. It might have been something to do with worms. I got the word worms in it, but it was very, very garbled. Uh, So you can recall that one. Anybody else, give it till next week because it probably is just that I didn't get to yours yet because the response was so overwhelming. Anyway, here's the calls I have selected today. I got... Uh, like three little announcements and two, actually one announcement and a call, two little calls for help. They're not big calls for help, but the stuff you can help me out with. Uh, and I've got questions on grazing land that's about 20 minutes from home, someone that's never done it before. Uh, I got, uh, a, a, a person calling in with an opinion of the millennials that's not a negative one. Uh, but yet they're still like, well, they need to step up type thing. I, I have been waiting for an opportunity to read you something about Generation X. Which is my generation, um, and put a little perspective into maybe we are too hard on millennials, so we 'll talk about that a bit today. I have a question on getting started with scything. I have a question on planting trees and i 'm calling it hostile environment you 'll see what that means I mean I have a hostile environment right here now don 't I um, and uh, this guy is a little bit different of one. I have a question on alternatives to heartworm medication for dogs and not really alternatives, but a different way to use the same medication. Uh, I'll be ginger with the way that I respond to that, but I will tell you why I think uh, on some levels what vets are doing with hardware, medication, and testing is a scam. Uh, Low-maintenance crops for a community garden, we have a question on that. Structuring a business agreement. And how Bitcoin is quote-unquote infinitely fractionable. Uh, I think there's kind of a misunderstanding there about what a such is, and we'll talk about that. And I think it will really drive home why you should hold at least a little bit of Bitcoin. Uh, because I think when you understand this, you understand why it keeps going up, and even when it goes down, it just kind of rebounds. and the, the total moving average from launch to today is just, just a straight, gentle line upward, and it's probably going to continue, at least in my opinion. All that more in just a bit. Before we do that, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Bobwell's Nursery has become my go-to for fruit trees, nut trees, and hard-to-find edibles. Their customer service is second to none, and they even provide a 10% discount for all MSB members. Check them out at BobwellsNursery.com today. You know, guys, I've been telling you about how Safe Castle Royal has everything for your prepping needs for over seven years now. Everything's a big word, but in this case, it's true. Of course, they have long-term storage food, water purification equipment, shelters, solar and wind components, and more. But hey, did you know they even have an amazing fold down bug out bicycle? Yeah, they actually have two of those. For everything you could ever need as a prepper, and I do mean everything. Check out safecastle.com today. And our TSP business directory sponsor of the day is Second Amendment Jewelry. They provide gifts, jewelry and accessories made from spent shell casings. You can use the coupon code TSP TSP bus directory in their Etsy store for 10% off your entire order. Click their link in the show notes today to see their listing in the directory. Remember, you too can have your business listed in the directory for as little as $5 per six months or step up to a bronze, silver, or gold membership and you will get occasional show mentions. Uh, and be able to do business with people that are part of this community and find others. Check out the business directory if you, if you haven't recently, folks. It really is a great example of the entrepreneurs in the community and what they have to offer and people doing business with each other. Remember to leave reviews. I mean, I think that's something that's underutilized in the directory. Um, if you do business with one of these folks and you have a good experience, leave a review. If you have a bad experience, leave a review. Give them a chance to make it right, too. I think that's when we see the best results on things like Amazon and eBay with reviews where the person puts a negative reveal and then maybe later updates and says, hey, you know, they they, they checked this out and they fixed it. Uh, I think that's important. Anyway, next up, let's take a look at the year that was the episode, the year 1978, because the episode of 1978. We're getting into a time where I think many of our audience was around, we grew up in and, and, and have experiences from. Um, here's what we have for 1978. From Alex Shrugged, we have California taxpayers flip off their government. From South Paul Bend, we have discrimination is illegal. Regions of the University of California versus Bakke. And from Alex Shrugged, we have Israel and Egypt get peace. Jimmy Carter gets zip. And notable births this year. Garfield, yes, the cat from the comic strip, is born this year. Morgan Webb, co-host of 1,300 episodes of X-Play, the video game review show, is born this year. Bill Hatter from SNL, Brian Greenberg, HBO's How to Make it in America, and Nikki Cox on Happily Ever After. In music, Matthew Bellamy of Muse and Usher, who, like Captain Kirk, can't keep his shirt on. In movies, Katie Holmes, Batman's Childhood Sweetheart in Batman Returns. As we move forward, I realize that as we get closer and closer to present day, there'll be less notable births and less actors and entertainers and stuff like that because, well, when you're three, you're not doing a lot of acting, usually. This year in film, though, John Travolta and Lemmy Newton-John sing their way through high school in Greece, the original high school musical. Superman comes out this year. Christopher Reed, excellent special effects, especially for the time. That was the first real modern Superman movie. And many of us, I think, as kids remember watching that. National Lampoon's Animal House comes out this year. Alex says, this is how Disney would make a movie if the whole staff was on LSD. Uh, indeed, coming home, uh, it was, comes out this year. A paralyzed veteran John Voigt falls in love with a wife of a Marine Jane Fonda. It's an anti-Vietnam War uh, movie and a little too preachy for Alex Shrugged. This year in TV, 2020, the TV news magazine first launches. The primetime soap opera Dallas uh, launches. I think many of us in America think Dallas that was a, a you know, big thing in America. It came, it went, it's gone. It's in the past. It's like you know, maybe somebody watches it on Netflix or something. Let me tell you something. In the United Kingdom, the show Dallas is as popular today as it was when it was popular here. And coming out new episodes, I don't know what it is about the Brits, but they love Dallas. And whenever I meet people from England, they're like, "You you, you live in Texas? Do you know J.R.? <laughs> Have you been to-? the ranch? You know the Ewing ranch and all, because it's right over in like the east side of Dallas. It's I don't know what it is, but they love it. Battlestar Galactica comes out this year. Fantasy Island comes out this year. People pay big bucks to live out their fantasies. I loved that show. I really did as a kid. In comedy, Taxi, Mork & Mindy, and WKRP in Cincinnati come out. Of the three of those, I think WKRP was probably the best show and my favorite. In music, the Bee Gees dominate in 1978 with "Staying Alive, Night Fever, and How Deep Is Your Love. And uh, Also, You're the One That I Want from Travolta and Newton-John from the musical Grease. And YMCA comes out from the Village People, and there'll be disco in every kind of bar uh, once a night on the popular nights forever, it seems. I remember Cowboy Bars playing this when I used to hang out in Cowboy Bars back in the 90s, and everybody doing the YMCA thing It was stupid. I didn't participate, but it made me smile. This year in video games, gross arcade sales hit $1 billion. They'll hit $1.5 billion next year. Space Invaders hits Japan. Five months later, hits the U.S. The golden age of video games has begun. Um, I remember going to Pizza Hut when people actually went to Pizza Hut for like a night out to eat. Well, they had a full bar. They were pretty nice. They had a really nice salad bar. And I remember playing Space Invaders on the tabletop video game. Uh, that was probably the most popular one that, that, that would show up at a, uh, uh, a Pizza Hut. And those of you that are younger than me like say significantly like you're in your 20s, I don't think I can anybody can explain to you what Pizza Hut was like compared to what it is. I just don't think they can. Um, Nintendo releases Computer Othello to arcades this year. In other news, San Francisco Mayor George Moscone and Supervisor Harvey Milk are assassinated. The assassin, Don White, will use the Twinkie defense. Apparently lost control after eating too many Twinkies. I don't think that worked well for him. The first test tube baby is born. Actually, Louis Brown is conceived in a Petri dish. Her parents did not realize they were participating in an experiment, a lie of omission by the doctors. Gee, doctors lie? No. And home-brewed beer is now legal. And, and uh, Alex says, I'm a big enough man to admit that Jimmy Carter did some things right. Here's the thing about home-brewing becoming legal in 1978. It was still illegal in most of the United States under state laws. And some states have only very, very recently actually repealed their laws in spite of the fact that home-brewing stores and home-brewing competitions were going on right under the nose. It was like this weird thing that like, no one cared about your law anymore and no one was prosecuted under, but it's still there. Uh, Irrelevancy through innovation, I guess. So I want to read California taxpayers flip off their government because it's one of the few things that was ever done right in California with government. It was done by restricting government. The California Initiative System allows voters to propose their own laws. Cough, cough. Proposition 13 cuts property taxes by 60% and limits the rate of growth of property taxes for existing homeowners to 1% a year. Homebuyers pay full freight as the property tax assessment resets the current value, but this allows elderly to remain in their homes without being taxed into foreclosure. Leading the fight for Proposition 13 is a retired Orange County businessman Howard Jarvis, who has moved to California as a young man and watched in delight as the value of his home multiplied tenfold, but then shrieked in horror as his tax bill skyrocketed to match. No homeowner can plan for retirement when their ta- the taxes on his home exceed the national debt of Paraguay. Proposition 13 passes and victory is sweet, but property taxes are a major source of funding for the state. Even though nothing has changed that government services grind to a halt. Abusive bureaucrats sneer. We don't do that anymore. It's Proposition 13. In other words, you gave us the middle finger, so now you can shove your request right up your, uh, never mind. Timber flare, but proposition holds. It's the law. My take by Alex Strug. The government has tried to make up for reduced property taxes by raising fees, because fees are not really taxes, Right. I laughed out loud when I saw the Wikipedia page on California Proposition 13. Someone set up an automatic counter for months, days, and years since it was passed. That someone is still very angry with the voters. And and for a bigger laugh, remember the movie Airplane? The main character parks his taxi in the passenger loading zone. An old man gets into the taxi, but the driver runs into the terminal, leaving the meter running. Midway through the movie, the man is still waiting, and the meter reads over $11,000. $11,000. At the very end, as the guy gets the girl and all is right with the world, the scene returns to the old man in the taxi. He looks at his watch and says, well, I'll give him another 20 minutes, but that's it. Fade to black. It's an inside joke. The old man was Harold Jarvis, now blessed, now of blessed memory, the hero of Proposition 13. He knew how to take a joke after all. He was living in California. So... I think you got to give it to California citizens for doing this. Here's what I'll tell you today: getting this repealed today would be difficult, but getting it passed today in the mindset of Californians would be impossible. It would be impossible. There are so such believers that government must do whatever it's doing now, and there's no other solution that any concept like this would would fail. I don't remember if it was North or South Dakota, but well, a couple of years ago had a proposition to eliminate property taxes, 100% eliminate property taxes. A fear campaign was run, and guess what? People voted to keep property taxes. I mean, are you kidding me? It's insane. It's absolutely insane that people would want to force themselves to pay taxes. and You know what, if you want to pay your property taxes, go ahead. Why are you forcing me to pay tax on property that I worked hard to acquire? You're punishing me for productivity. And as far as the uh, bureaucrat scenario, we don't do that anymore. It's Proposition 13. Same shit when they shut the government down. And they they, they had people not letting people into national parks because the government was shut down. So you're paying someone to prevent someone from using something they don't need you to use. It's government. It's the state. Anything that pushes back on the state makes the state show its true colors. It's nothing but a brutal bully of a thug. That's what the state is. And those of you that still think we need it for all this shit, you're supporting a brutal bully of a thug. Don't mean to be that in your face on a Thursday, but once in a while, I just have to point it out. All right, folks, let me remind you that the main way that you can support the work that we do here at the Survival Podcast is by joining the Member Support Brigade, or MSB for short, and you hear me talk all the time about the over 60 discounts that you get, but let me tell you some of the other things you get. How about nine free ebooks, including Planting Trees the Low-Cost Easy Way, How to Build Top Bar Beehives, Basics of Sprouting?, Building an EPAC kit, getting your household in order, building a traditional clay oven, building aquaponic systems, secrets of ballistic strikings, and Squanto's Garden—all of those are free eBooks that you get only as an MSB member. You can also download MP4 versions of many of our YouTube videos. You get zip files of every episode of TSP ever produced, and how about videos of the workshops? Here at Nine Mile Farm that we do in the spring and the fall. All of that and more available as an MSB member. You can sign up for as little as five bucks a month to give it a shot or $50 a year. That comes out to 18.3 cents an episode. With that, um, I got a few things for you before we take our first call. Number one, I just put a post out, um, on the Granddaddy's Gun Club site, uh, this week. Uh, And I haven't done one on on TSP yet. I probably will soon, but I think the spaces are filling up quick anyway. But just a reminder that we're doing our first official Granddaddy's Gun Club uh, camp and shoot uh, in Corsicana, Texas uh, next month. The dates are, let me make sure I get them right, May 5 through 7, that is a weekend. And I think last time I talked about this on the air, I said it's pretty much a camp or you're stuck. There actually is a hotel relatively close, so if you didn't want to camp, You could get a hotel room. Um, The fee is going to be $25 cash on arrival. It basically pays for food uh, the final evening. And we have a guy cooking for everybody, so that's all that 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 fee really does and uh, and, and helps cover the, the cost of the campsites as well. It's a pretty good campground. It's going to be awesome. Remember what Granddaddy's Gun Club is all about. It's about handing down... Uh, guns to future generations and telling the stories of those guns and building camaraderie and building something really special in the preservation of the Second Amendment. I invite you to join us if you live in North Texas and get over to Grandaddy'sgun.com and uh, join for free and check out the North Central Texas group if you want to know more about that or look at the blog and you'll see links to everything there. And I'll probably try to get a blog out on the TSP blog tomorrow about daddy 's Gun Club. Next, I am having some problems with grand- granddaddy's gun club it is it is run on buddy press and i have done everything i can to put the k Bosch on spammers and i don't get a lot of them anymore the problem is i don't want it to interfere with me approving valid members and sometimes it's hard to tell if somebody's a valid member or not because some people have weird email addresses now if the email address ends in .ru or .pl or something like that I just delete it because this is an American thing. I'm not anti other nations or whatever. But if you're going to be part of Granddaddy's Gun Club coming to shoots in America, I assume you're in America. You know, in America. Uh, so I've blocked out almost every country except like the UK, Canada, Australia, the United States. I think that's about it. They could even get on that site. That helped a lot. I run a, a, a program called Clean Talk, which really helps with spam and fake user registrations. They still get in because what people do is they pay Indians and and what have you to uh, you know people from the Philippines and stuff like that to sit around and basically set up fake shit on websites all day long. That's all they do, and these people know that a lot of these sites will 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 ban them or they can't get to them if they're you know in India. So they use proxies, U.S. proxy servers, and they'll get, and they man. This, bots really can't do anything to me anymore. These are manual. Uh, people that are again, you know, basically people working offshore, being paid pennies to set up lots of crap like Justin Bieber fan club website links and shit like that. So it's it's maybe five to ten a week that I get like that because it really is hard for them to get through all of the things that I've set up now. What happens though? I have a manual approval process. When somebody joins the Granddaddy's Gun Club, I have to, I get a, a, an email that tells me that they signed up, and I have to click a link and, and go to the thing and say approve or deny. Okay, I don't mind doing that. I, the, the small number that it really is, I don't mind doing it. My problem is every once in a while I get one and I can't tell. I can't tell if it's a spammer or a legitimate person. The email maybe looks a little bit funny, but it's you know it's a Yahoo email and it's not it's not seventy five characters long. The name is a is a it's not you know poopy poopy poo or something like that. It's a it's a legitimate handle or name, and I just I'm not sure. And usually what I do is send that person an email and say, how would you find out about Granddaddy's Gun Club? And they do or do not get back to me. And uh, eventually, when they don't get back to me for like a day, I just delete that registration. And I'm just afraid that I'm going to have people wanting to sign up. They can't sign up, so I'm, I can't find a plugin that does this. But maybe one of you folks out there that works with WordPress knows one. What I want to do is on the registration page of WordPress to be able to add a custom question, and it would simply be, "How did you find out about Granddaddy's Gun Club, and what makes you want to join?" And a little text box, and make that you know required. That if you don't put something in there, it it, 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 it won't let you submit. And uh, well, that way, when I would look at the registration, I could see what they put in there. If I could get something like that, then when I get somebody, I heard about it on Survival Podcast, or somebody told me about it on Facebook, or whatever. I know it, it looks like a legitimate email, even if it's iffy. They've answered that question, they're probably legit. And uh, there has to be a plug that does that. So if you know of one, please let me know about it. Just email me, com. Put TSPC WordPress in the subject line. Let me know the plugin's name. Uh, I know that's a small segment of the audience, but... I'm trying to build these communities to help you guys, and you know, basically this is, uh, you know, it's just crowdsourcing a solution. Next up, uh, I talked about this briefly toward the end yesterday. I put out a post about it today, though, and I know some of you don't listen all the way through the end of the show, so I wanted to put it out a little earlier. I'm trying to produce a show. Let's say in the next three or four weeks, I'd like to get enough content for it on how you basically MacGyvered your way out of a bad situation where your vehicle was stuck or stranded or you know couldn't get it home or whatever. Um, and so I have a post. All I need you to do is send me your story. Don't try to make it 20 paragraphs. You know, make it, you know, five or six sentences. We broke down. This is what was wrong. Here's how we got out of the situation. If it's really interesting, go ahead and write me a few paragraphs on it, but don't write me a book. And uh, send it in, and I'm going to do a show all different ways that people got stuck somewhere and how they were able to get home. Uh, the example, because I don't want to give away my big example, even though I've said it way in the past, I want it to be part of the show, but this is a story I've told recently from an idiot, but uh, he was only an idiot because of how he did it. Uh, my buddy Dean, when I was in the Army, this guy was a rare bird, his 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 uh, his torque rod fell off, like where it connects to the grease fitting that actually attaches it, where it actually controls. So what the, what the, the torque rod actually does um, is... I'm sorry, tie rod. I, I don't know why I'm saying torque rod. So well, the tie rod actually is this, this part. It's pretty important to your suspension. And it actually attaches to the to, to a fitting on the inside of your wheel. Usually it's a, there's a grease fitting there. And I guess you didn't grease it or whatever, and that fitting wore out. And it's what actually controls your – when you turn the wheel and your, your front wheels turn you know left and right, it, it, it does that. But it also, like if it's not there, the wheel just doesn't have any – it could turn in, it could turn out. You, you, you know, it just it's, – it's really important. So he sticks it back in there and uses, like, 10 tie wraps on it, tie wraps it together, and it holds. And if he had done that and just, like, got it from where he was back to to base and then, you know, ordered a part and fixed it, that would have been pretty good. It ended up two weeks later, me and my buddy Brad are, like, driving, you know, bending speed limits, hauling ass in his truck because he was always like, hey, we need your truck. He just throws the keys. Uh, he's a great guy. That way, we get back, and he tells us. He goes, "I should have told you to go a little easy on it." He drove it around for like three weeks. So that's that's not what I'm talking about. But the first part, you know, this will work to get me home. Those are the kind of stories I want to tell because I think it'll help a lot of people. And with that, let's go ahead and get into our our first call of the day. This one is about grazing land. Uh, let you, you know you don't live on and getting started with uh, grazing animals for me. Let's go ahead and hear from the caller.
1: Hey, Jack Austin and Leo here with another
0: question not related to law
1: enforcement. I, question is, what would you use for land that is 15 to 20 minutes from your home, uh, grazing wise? I have details. I have 11.11 acres roughly 15 to 20 minutes from the house that we just bought, which that's the other question that I had asked about. Uh, gardening in a windy area. However, my question in this one is what kind of grazing ruminants would you utilize if you could and set up infrastructure with land that's approximately 15 to 20 minutes away? Uh, we're looking at improving land and getting a meat source. Um, I'm thinking cattle. I didn't know if you would go with goats uh, or anything like that. Honestly, don't know if any poultry would be feasible because I would not be like turkeys or anything like that. Um, I'm new to this, so any advice would be great. Um, Just any grazing uh, 15, 20 minutes away, what would you do? Uh, Thanks, and thank you for everything you do. Have a good one.
0: Okay, so I actually think this is a fine idea, but I want you to definitely ease into it. For our climate and for return on your investment, I would suggest looking at either cattle, as you're suggesting, or Dorper lambs. Uh, I think those would be your two best bets with the easiest um, uh, implementation, and I'm not sure which one. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you straight out of the gate. I am not an expert on, on ruminants. I'm just not. I have some experience working in and around with them, but I've never... Uh, you know, overseeing the grazing of a field with cattle. I understand the process. I understand things like rotational grazing very well. But it's just we all only can do so many things. So this is what I am going to say, though. Do one or do the other. Do not do both out of the gate. Get the system down with one and, you know, nail it down. And then if you want to say, well, maybe we'll do a leader follower with, with with Dorper sheep and and cattle. Yeah, that might work really good it might work really good. You might even be able to cohabitate them. Um with with your your lambs though, if they're young enough you may have some predator issues. So I, I will you know you're gonna have to think about that. Where with cattle, even if you've got young cattle, um uh, calves, if they're with adults, usually it's you know when they're really little and I don't want you to start there. Um when 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 they're a little bit bigger, they're a bit big for a coyote in the first place. And adult cattle will beat the shit out of a coyote. They they really will. Um, at least coyotes will believe that. So you got to think a little bit about predator issues too. Less of a concern because I think what you should be doing is getting well started calves that you have like a year of finish time on or something like that for your first go round, or or possibly even you know considering picking up some cattle at auction that are just underweight, but they're, they're pretty much adults, and you're just going to get them into a, a good situation with being, you know, grazing on good land, maybe give them some supplemental feed. Just get your feet wet. You're, you're, here's my two biggest concerns. One is water. If you're not going to be there all the time, you got to make damn sure that these things don't go without water. And two, how good the land is for grazing. Because Texas is very deceptive with this. Right now you go out there and you look at everything's freaking green and it will be right up through June in most of the state. here it's a little harder with how shallow our soils are. but imagine that you have a decent place for grazing. You know if it's been rotationally grazed well, it probably hasn't or somebody would still be doing it. Uh, it may be a lot more resilient. And yes, if you do it right, it will become more resilient and it will hold longer and it will it will support them. But that doesn't matter when you're starting out and you don't know what you're doing. And you don't know what you're doing, right? Just That's not an insult. It's just the way that it is. So I would also suggest maybe that you need to find someone local that's doing this on that kind of a scale. You know, someone that is... And most people that are managing cattle, you know, they're doing, you know, five-head or something like that... Um, they like what they do enough that they want to share it and if you're you know seeing someone else do it how they do it how they manage it might be a good idea and even if it's not the way that we would want to do it getting that down and your cows stay alive and they grow and they thrive and you get a meat yield that is so important and then you can start figuring out well how do i put some now now i got this all figured out how do i put some Portable infrastructure and move these cattle in, in a you know a paddock type system because ideally to me you know you'd use electro tape and step ins and you would graze them you know an acre you're not gonna have anywhere near the density that you would you know if you're doing commercial um, but you know maybe I, and I don't know how long because I don't know what the land's like and how many head you would have and all but you know maybe they're on an acre or a half acre for two or three days and then they're moving and they're constantly being moved um, and if you did you know a half acre. You, you would make, uh, what, 22 moves before they were back to where they started on an 11-acre piece of land. You have to kind of think about that. Maybe even a quarter, I don't know, maybe a quarter of an acre. It depends on what's there. Um, another thing, though, when you start restricting their movement is you, you see this all the time around here. You get a big-ass field, and there's like three trees, and everything dead under those trees is dead as shit, and all the cattle are under those trees most of the day. They go out in the morning and the evening to eat, and they spend most of the day under those trees because it's freaking hot. So is there shade for your animals? Is there some sort of portable shade that you can create for them so that you can move it with them, that they won't destroy because they do break shit, right? So that's the kind of thing to think about. Even if you put up portable shade, you got to think about the whole day long. Some, sometimes people put up a portable shade, and a big part of the day, it doesn't provide any shade. And often it's when it need, when they need it most. So you got to think about how the shadows cast if you're going to do something like that. So those are all things to think about because if if you can't get water to them, you're going to have dead cows. If you aren't going to get good grazing, you're either going to buy supplemental feed of some sort, or your cattle, even if they live, are going to be underweight and not what you're looking for in the in quality of meat. Um, so you need to make sure that you know you you, you take care of those things. And I really think. Working with somebody doing it might be a better idea than just trying to go it completely alone. Try to find someone around you, uh, you know, look around, look for a place where you see, you know, half a dozen cattle uh, grazing, and see if you can track down who owns them, and uh, you know, talk to them and say, you know, can you kind of, sh- here's where I'm thinking about being, and can I, you know, help, can you help me out a little bit with some advice? And, and they probably will like that because they might have stock to sell you or something like that, or they might know someone that sells stock that they know they're doing a favor for, and that's going to come back and be beneficial to them. So it's not just you know, out of just kindness, but a lot of times people that are doing stuff like this, there's an advantage to them by helping other people out because the more people you have in your network, the more people you can rely on when you need something or you need some help or you want to take a vacation. And if Tommy down the road is managing a small herd, you know that he can look after years and they're not going to be all dead when you get home, and then vice versa, you can do it for him. So I know we're always looking for people... They know how to take care of animals because it's an asset to us in the area. That we have someone that, if we're gone for a day and we get stuck somewhere, they can run by and, and take care of things. So I think you find a lot of friendliness there. One of the reasons I'm suggesting cattle, and I don't really know exactly what this means, but this is another reason to talk to somebody. The guy across the street uh, for me, before they moved and sold their house, was running like five five head. And one of the reasons he said this is he said, right now, the government will pretty much throw money at you if you're managing, you know, cattle, even a small number of them. And he was, it had something to do with a huge tax break on a a really beautiful pickup truck that he bought. So there's some tax advantages to cattle right now that uh, that are pretty good, at least according to my neighbor. You might want to learn more about that. Conversely, though, Dorber sheep produce an amazing lamb. They really do. And they're a sheep that can graze almost as in harsh environments as goats do and, and produce really good quality lamb. They're a fairly large lamb, but they're nowhere near as big as a cow. And I think it might be easier to do on a, on a you know, 11 acres is still a relatively small acreage. However, it may be harder to find people to help you. And I don't know that you'll be able to get all the tax advantages you can with cattle. And it may be also a little harder to sell off some of your meat. And I I can tell by the way you're talking, you're thinking, well, I'll get you know one or two, and it'll be for us. You're going to do just as much work to manage two cows as you are going to manage four or five. You sell one or two cows, you pay for everything. You don't make much money, but you pay for everything. So I just say consider that as well. Maybe not in your first year, but consider moving into that as a model. Um, Again, I think your first year the least amount of time between when you're going to put that cow on the grass and it's going to go graduate at Bovine University, the better. Because you want, think of it like you want training wheels your first year, right, and then you want the, the, the big boy bike your second year, and then you're going to get on a motorcycle your third year, right? Like that's kind of how to ease into this. But those are the two I would look to, and anybody from the area that's doing this, maybe reach out and give Austin some help on the blog. Let's take another one.
1: Hey, Jack Ryan from Pennsylvania, uh, about the millennials. You look, and the biggest group of roughnecks and veterans that this country's had uh, since, you know, maybe the greatest generation are, are these millennials, you know. So they're harder than we give them credit for. They just need to step it up and start leading. Thanks. Keep up the good work. Bye.
0: I do think we're too hard on the millennial generation at times. I really do. Um, I think the fact that they don't know how to do a lot of things isn't their fault. It's their parents' fault that didn't teach them how to do shit or didn't require them to do shit. I think most of the things that are wrong with kids, you can, you can hoist upon the generation that parented them. I, I really do. Um, and I think they have, and I've said this before, I think they have amazing potential. And I don't think it's fair to say, you know, millennials and, and just lump it in as a group. I was part of Gen X. And I remember a, a guy that I worked with, he was a, a regional manager, and I was a regional manager. He was a different region in the United States when I worked for a company called GarrettCom. And he was talking about this new marketing person that our, our boss, Frank, had hired, and he didn't really like her, and he kept, kept saying, She's one of these Gen X idiots. He's Gen X idiots. He's Gen X. I said, Vic, do you know I'm Gen X? He goes, No, you're not. I'm like, Yes, I am. He goes, Well, you are by age, but you're not what I'm talking about. And I think that if you are a millennial, you need to understand that when you hear negative things about your generation, if you're not doing those things, people talking about it don't mean you. And I also think one of the things that's kind of fuzzy with millennials is it's a pretty long timeline and you know, my son is a millennial and he's going to be 28 this year. And my nephew is a millennial, and he's in his mid thirties. He's like the tail end. He's almost my generation. And then I have a farmhand that's seventeen. There's a big difference between each of those people in, in, you know, the what they can, can't do, their lack of knowledge or lack of motivation, et cetera, like that. But I want to temper it all with this because Generation X is actually very well thought of today. Right? Well, let me read something to you. This is off Wikipedia. It's on the Gen X page for Wikipedia. And it says, as young adults. In the 1990s, media pundits and advertisers struggled to define the cohort, typically portraying them as unfocused 20-somethings. A MetLife report noted, quote, media would portray them as the French generation, rather self-involved and perhaps aimless, but fun, end quote. In French, Gen Xers were sometimes referred to as Generation Bouffe, because of their tendency to use the word boof, which translated into English means whatever. Have you heard that as a parent, right? Gen Xers often portrayed as apathetic and as slackers, a stereotype which was initially tied to Richard Linklater's comedic and essentially plotless 1991 film, Slacker. After the film was released, journalists and critics thought they put a finger on what was different about these young adults. They were reluctant to grow up and disdainful of earnest action. Stereotypes of Gen X adults also included that they were bleak, cynical, and disaffected. Such stereotypes prompted societal research at Stanford University to study the accuracy of the character of Gen X young adults as cynical and disaffected. Using the National General Societal Survey, the researchers compared answers to identical survey questions and asked of 18- to 29-year-olds in three different time periods. Additionally, they compared how older adults answered the same survey questions over time. The survey showed that 18 to 29 year old Gen Xers did exhibit high levels of cynicism and disaffection than previous cohorts of 18 to 29 year olds surveyed. However, they also found that cynicism and disaffection had increased among all age groups surveyed over time, not just young adults, making this a period of effect, a period effect, not a cohort effect. In other words, adults of all ages were more cynical and disaffected in the 90s, not just Gen X. In 1999, Time Magazine published an article called. Uh, living, Proceeding with Caution, which described those in the 20s as aimless and unfocused. However, in 1997, they published an article titled Generation X Reconsidered, which retracted the previously reported negative stereotypes and reported positive accomplishments, citing Gen Xers' tendency to found technology startups and small business as well, as Gen Xers' ambition, which research showed was higher among Gen X adults than older generations. As the nineteen nineties and two thousand progressed, Generation X gained a reputation for entrepreneurship. In nineteen ninety nine, the New York Times dubbed them Generation ten ninety nine, describing them as once pitied but a now envied group of self employed workers whose income is reported to the IRS on W not on a W two form, but on Form ten ninety nine. In two thousand two, Time magazine published an article titled. Gen Xers aren't slackers after all, reporting four out of five new businesses were the work of Gen Xers. In 2001, sociologist Mike Males reported confidence and optimism common among the co- ho- cohort saying, surveys consistently find 80% to 90% of Gen Xers are self-confident, and optimistic. In August 2001, Males wrote, these young Americans should finally get the recognition they deserve. Praising the cohort and stating that they, the permissively raised, universally deplored Gen X is a true great generation, for it has braved a hostile social climate to reverse abysmal trends, describing them as the hardest working group since World War II generation and was, which was dubbed by Tom Brokaw as the greatest generation. He reported Gen Xers' entrepreneurial tendencies helped create high tech industry that fueled the 90s economic recovery. In the U.S., Gen Xers were described as major heroes of the September 11 terrorist attacks. As demographer William Strauss, the firefighters and police responding to those attacks were predominantly Gen X. Additionally, leaders of the passenger revolt on United United Airlines Flight 93 were predominantly Gen X. Demographer Neil Howe reported surveys showed that Gen Xers were cohabitating and getting married in increasing numbers following the terrorist attacks, with Gen X survey respondents reporting patriotism since terrorism struck, reporting many were responding to the crisis of terrorist attacks by giving blood, working for charities, donating to charities, and by joining the military to fight the war on terror. The jury expert, a publication of the American Society of Trial Consultants, reported Gen X members responded to the terror attacks with bursts, of patriotism and national fervor that surprised even themselves. And you can read the rest if you want to. But basically what this says is, everybody said Gen X sucked in like the late 80s and early 90s, and by the dawn of the new millennium, everybody was singing the praises of Gen X. There's no reason that can't happen for the millennials. None. And I think the oldest millennials are pretty optimistic Raising great families and doing great things. My concern for the millennial generation is more about the parenting and the teaching around them and, and limiting them and making them incapable and their lack of ability to do things. Which, again, you can blame the parent, but the kids still have to deal with it. The young adults still have to deal with it. When you can't change a tire, you know, it's a problem. When, when, you, when you have a young, like this young guy working for me, how to explain what a ratchet was and how a ratchet worked? And when the bolt got loose to where a ratchet won't ratchet anymore, it just keeps turning the bolt back and forth. It took him multiple explanations to understand what was happening and why all you had to do is reach down and grab onto the, 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 the socket and keep turning the ratchet, but don't let it come backwards. It was difficult for him to understand. This scares me mostly for the younger portion of the millennials. And it scares the shit out of me for what they're calling Generation Y, or I call the internet natives, which is the kids being born now aren't millennials. The millennial generation, they're like 13 is the bottom of it. And at 13 to 25, I'm worried for those kids. But boy, these kids being born today, I'm really worried. And I just want to be clear, because I know a lot of you that listen are in these age brackets... I'm not picking on you. I'm not talking about you. I'm talking about how society is screwed up, and you have to stand up, man up, pull up your drawers, and get shit done, and teach yourself, and learn. And the beauty is, there has never been a better time to learn than right now. And you can, and the thing that I think millennials struggle with, you can watch all the YouTube videos you want, and you can learn a lot of shit from them. But until you actually do it, you haven't learned and then the best way to learn is to teach. When you can do it half-assed but okay and get it done, teach it to somebody else. I think there's a lot coming from this generation, and I hope so. Because my old retired ass is going to depend on you guys. And uh, hopefully the uh, the Wikipedia entry about you guys in 10 years will it'll look a little bit more like this one that I read to you today. And those of you that are you know in your 40s, in your early 50s, you know, in your late 30s, they're all the Gen X and proud of yourselves now. Remember, we were a bunch of do-nothing, useless slackers, too, at one time that had no prayer. Just remember that. Let's take another one.
1: Hi, um, this is Jan in California. I actually um, have an area where we have a lot of weeds, and I'm curious about the idea of using a scythe instead of a weed whacker animals. Um, we have a lot of, to make it clear, um, I borrow land and I clear it every year so the man, um, and he allows me to do fruit trees and uh, all sorts of things, Um, keep goats, but the goats, he doesn't want fencing up in certain areas, so I wind up weed whacking every year, and I really like the idea of using a scythe, but I don't know if it's just bent over a lot of work hurts the back. Anything you know about using a scythe to um, take down maybe above the knee weeds? Thanks. Appreciate you being on the
0: air. There was actually a lot of that call that I had a hard time understanding. I don't know if it's the pitch of the voice or something to do with the call itself or or, or or what, but I get the basics. We have an area it needs to be weed whacked. Instead of weed whacking it, you'd prefer to scythe it, but you really don't know much about size and is it going to hurt your back and are you bending over? That's kind of what I got out of that. So. The problem with this question for me, even understanding the basics of it, is it's a very visual thing, right? It's, it's something that – and the problem with recommending YouTube is there's a lot of people telling people how to do it, and they're not just half-assed doing it wrong. They're doing it completely wrong. There's a video of this lady like just mowing down a field, and uh, everybody posts this thing on, on Facebook about oh, once or twice a year it'll go around. It's been going around for years. Everybody's so blown away. It's, she's, doing, she's completely wrong because she's bent over and just like driving through it. A scythe should be sharp and it should be properly fit and we should be using the right blade for what we're cutting. If we're cutting weeds and brush that are thicker, we should be using a shorter stouter blade that is called a weed and brush blade. If we're cutting nice thin grain, we use a nice long blade and we need proper form and to have proper form, we need proper fit. So. I recommend that you start, you know, kind of checking into like homestead communities and things like uh, living history communities and stuff like that. And I bet you can find some people in your area that not only youth size but they restore them. They, you know, they 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 think in period thinking, kind of like J. A. Townsend type concept. And uh, look for someone that can help mentor you. I'm going to give you some advice, but I think that would be best because having someone show you what proper fit is would be a great idea. I'll also say that Chris Prater did an incredible presentation on scythes at our, not this workshop, but the one before. If you're an MSB member, in the download section, you can find all of the videos from that workshop, including his video on scything, And it's great. And he'll show you, you can actually watch that. And I'll recommend that because it's Correct. What you're hearing and what you're seeing is correct. So I really recommend that. And yes, you have to be an MSB member to view it, but you can join for 5 bucks a month. So if you want to do this, I think it would be worth the investment and go look at that video. So the big thing is, though, you've got your blade and you've got your snatch. Your snatch is your handle. And when you're standing holding those handles off of the snatch, off of the main snatch blade, you should be fit to where when you swing and you're holding that blade level, your back is straight, you're sitting in your hips a little bit, and all you have to do is just swing back and forth, and you're cutting. And if you're doing that, then you're, you're properly fit. The blade angle's proper, the length is proper. If you're not properly fit, and your, your angle's not right, if you do cut right, you're going to put your body in a, in a way that's going to make it very, very difficult on you, or more difficult than it has to be. So that fit is important. There's different ways to do it where it's still right. There's some people that just basically just twist at the waist, and they don't really use their legs at all, and they really don't even sit down in their hips much, and they just walk forward, and they do that, and it's very rhythmic, and we keep that blade sharp, and it works. And then there's people that do it more like I do, um, a little bit more martial. When I mean, I'm referring to martial arts. I sit almost in a horse stance, and I pick one I pick my left foot up because I'm right handed, I'm going to swing for my right, and as I put my left foot down I bring my swing forward. And as I coming back I lift my right foot up and I'm just constantly advancing forward. And you get into a kind of a, a metrodome type thing. like so whoosh whoop, whoosh, whoop, whoosh whoosh and I'll tell you what sides are great for. Sides are great for any place you don't have to do a lot of stuff around trees and poles and bushes. And you'll see competitions with weeders when the ciders and they're doing it all and they can do it. But it, the scythe is meant to be used in a field. So if you don't have a lot of stuff that, like a tree, will just jack your blade up to shit if you and mess the tree up. Like, if you don't have a lot of that and you've got an open space, I think it's a great way to go. It really is. It always works, it always starts up, right? Uh, it just needs some proper maintenance. The other thing you got to learn though is sharpening and peening. Some people get away without peening ever, but eventually your site will not perform the way that it should if you don't peen. You can peen it on a very small anvil that you can buy online. I mean, this is something you can hold in your hand. And I have a tree stump that I just have a hole drilled into, and the anvil has a, you know, it's like a little anvil and it's got a little point. And you stick the point in that tree stump, and then you get your peening hammer. And I sit down there on the ground, and I get my scythe, and I peen. when you're peening, what you're doing is you're moving the metal and the blade forward, and you're making it thinner toward the edge. A scythe edge is different than a knife edge. Instead of having, and it's not just about the angles, but instead of having basically like the thickness of the blade come almost all the way down, and then the edge is kind of angled into it, the, the metal actually gets thinner and thinner and thinner, and it, it's in, in many ways the thinness of the metal that creates the, 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 the cutting edge, okay? And that means when you hit bigger things, you ding your blade up. So the other thing you need besides the peening hammer and the anvil, and this is the one you'll use more, is a whetstone. And I can't even begin to describe proper use of a whetstone for a scythe in an audio. But I carry a little scabbard. There's a little bit of water in it. And after about 10 minutes of scything, when it's still cutting really, really good, stop Put your handle on the ground, put your hand on top of the scythe, and there's a motion that you use, and you just clean up that blade. And if you do that, your scythe will stay sharp, and you can go a long time between peening if you're doing that. And if you find someone local that's good at peening, you know, you're probably not going to use it that much the way that I basically understood it. You know, maybe have it peened once a year and get somebody else to do it for and give them a few bucks. But definitely check out Chris Prater's video from the workshop. As far as the videos from the workshop we just did, they're up, they're live, they're on Vimeo. I haven't gotten them into the MSB yet. I'm going to try to do that by the end of next week. So all of this, all the stuff we did at the most recent workshop will be available to MSB as well. But the Prater video with the siding is in the last ones. It's already there. And if you're MSB, remember you got all those videos available and they are downloadable. You can download them in HD. Uh, I hire John Shimada each workshop to, to make sure that they're available to you like that. Another benefit of being a member. Let's take another question. Hi,
2: Jack. Bruce from Michigan. Hey, first of all, thanks for all you do. You've answered a couple of questions. Really appreciate it. Okay, you said you needed questions. I've got two. Can I, uh, main question, can I plant apple trees directly into composted wood, or am I wasting my time? Detail. I literally live on an abandoned gravel pit. Pit. Where they push six inches of top dirt over the rock stone pea stone mix for the reclamation. I uh, tried years ago to plant apple trees into that. I watered the piss out of them. They all died. Right under that six inches, there's no substructure. It just goes to literal gravel. Um, so I dug two by two by two holes, filled them full of wood mulch about three years ago, Um, thinking I could plant trees into that. Can I do that, or did I just waste my time? Or do I need to mix dirt with it? I just, I'm looking for some input here. Um, second question. I think you said in one of your Rewind podcasts that you had originally thought about moving to Idaho before moving to Arkansas. I too look at Idaho as a possible move to state. Uh, actually I have two questions off that. Where in Idaho were you looking? And more importantly, my question is, because I've been to Idaho, why does it seem that only evergreen trees grow there? Can other trees like maple oak uh apple trees thrive there, or is there something about the climate or the or the uh the state itself that makes that not not uh possible? Idaho has a similar uh zone as Michigan, although not has quite as much rain, so I just don't know what I'm missing when i get up go out there there's virtually no deciduous trees so I would like that answered. Again, thank you for all you do. Have a great day. Bye.
0: Well, let's start out with the lack of uh, deciduous forest. That's not Idaho. That's the whole west of the Rocky Mountains, northwest area. There are places with deciduous forest, but the dominant forest is, you know, basically boreal evergreen forests uh, up there. And that's just a function of the climate and what have you. And yes, if you were to be in Idaho and you were to provide, as long as you look at your USDA zones and how cold it gets and what your growing season is, and you select appropriate species that'll fit that, and you give your trees what you need, what they need from a fertility and, and irrigation standpoint, you can grow any tree you want that will grow in that climate in Idaho. It, it doesn't matter that most trees around you are are evergreens. That's you go to Colorado. That's what you're going to see. If you go to Montana in, you know where it borders, that's what you're going to see. Washington State, you know, you, 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 there's. It's not that there's not deciduous forests there. It's just the dominant species are evergreen forests. So it's not worth worrying. When I was thinking about it, I mean that Cortland area, North Central Idaho. It's that part of Idaho has been very popular with preppers and survivalists for a very long time, and I think people don't really understand why. And you think it's just because it's in the middle of nowhere and Idaho is a good state as far as government goes and all, you know, as good as it can be anyway. Part of it is there's a major climate moderation rate in that area. Um, it gets more rain than most of the surrounding area. It doesn't get as cold as the rest of it. It's not saying no, I'm not saying it doesn't get cold. I'm saying it doesn't get as cold as long. Um, it's generally a place where you can grow a garden or a small farm without irrigating. It's got a lot of advantages. And that was you know, but it's also in the middle of nowhere for me family wise. It was never gonna happen. It was just if I were to go somewhere in the northwest, that's probably where I would go. The the reality is the most likely place that I would live from a lifestyle standpoint other than here would be Florida. The Gulf Coast of Florida near Sanibel Island. And I think if it not for family, my wife and I'd be there already. Um, I'd fish every day of my life and I would be pretty happy about it. It's not the best as a preparedness mindset, but it's a pretty damn good place to live. All right, now on your question about your trees, I think you should plant some trees in those holes and see what happens. I don't know what's going to happen. You don't know what's going to happen. Make sure that they're watered well and all. Now, if it's a gravel beneath the fill dirt they put in, those trees over time should get into that gravel. They should get down in there. And they should get deep enough that they'll find a source of moisture. You gotta support them till they get there. And what you did is one way to do it. Would I have used some dirt or compost or whatever? Yeah. But you did it two years ago. You've got these two places with this rich stuff. You might as well do it. Another thing you might look at, you gotta really think if you wanna do this or not though. Because it's, it means maintenance and it means keeping an eye on things. You might wanna buy a whole bunch of cheap ass black locusts and plant a whole bunch of black locusts in there, because they will survive, right? You might need to give them some support through the first year with watering them, but they will survive. They'll get into that rock, and they'll put roots all over it. And if you start chopping and dropping those locust trees and pulsing those roots in there, you'll start to put humic acid down in there, and you'll start to build subsoil. But that's something you really got to decide whether that makes sense for you or not. But, you know, I would actually have taken a different approach personally. If you want to do more than the two spots you prepared now, because of the success I've seen with it here, I would have brought in a whole bunch of compost or a compost soil mix, and I would have built great big berms. I'm talking six to eight feet wide and maybe 10 to 12 inches high in the center and a very gentle wing shape both sides, exactly what I did in my west pasture. And I'd plant, and I'd put some irrigation in there. I wouldn't be out there with a hose every day. I'd put some, I don't care if you do what I did, you just get cheap PVC pipe, And you get hedge sprinklers and you just lay it on the ground and put the dirt over top of it. Plant your trees in there and put a a manual valve that you can walk out there at night and have a beer and turn that thing on for 15, 20 minutes and then really soak the shit out of it. That's that's how I would go if you want to go bigger. But the two things you you, you built, give it a shot, see how it works. It will work better than what you did earlier. I'll tell you that. How much better? I don't know. You know? I I really don't. Um, And a lot of things with trees is timing. You know, the more harsh your environment is, the more I recommend planting trees in the fall. Young, small, you know, one-year-old, grown-out trees in the fall. Let them go dormant there. Let them drop all of their energy from their leaves into those roots. Let them wake up there in spring. That That is that is the number one way to increase your survivability. Your number two way is to plant bare-root, dormant trees at the end of winter or beginning of winter, depending on you know, your climate and how that all works out. And, and the, 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 actually the worst time and the worst way to plant a tree, not say the worst, the worst time to plant a tree and the worst way would be a dormant bare root in late spring where it's going to be hot right away. And the second worst, and the one most people do, is to go down and buy a tree in a pot that's already leafed out and growing and plant it in, in late spring, early summer when it's going to get blazed with heat. Now, if you live in a place with deep soils and it rains a lot, you can get away with it. People get, that's why people do it. But the more harsh that environment, the more that is the case that you want to be planting in fall. That's just another thought. Now, for you with those two holes, it's two freaking trees. Throw them in there and see what happens. But I would definitely come up with, if, when you say water, you know, I see you out there with a hose like, you know, the typical garden. Come up with some way that you can put it on a timer or something like that and make sure it just stays watered. But the other side of it is don't overwater don't overwater. You can rot roots out. And when you plant your trees, I can't stress this enough, make sure you don't plant them too deep. That's the number one way people kill trees. The root flare should be exposed. If your tree goes into the ground it looks like a telephone pole, you are wrong. Okay? You want those roots. Because roots that are exposed will develop bark. but But trunk that's buried will never turn into a root. It will rot. So those are some things to think about. Let's take another one.
3: Hey Jack, I have a question on heartworm medication for dogs. We got four dogs, that we give the heartworm medication to every every month. But I was reading on uh, a couple of these livestock guardian forums that you can give them the uh, like a little pea-sized dollop of the worm and worm paste that they uh, give cows. I talked to the feed store, and they said, yeah, you could, but I'm. It's significantly cheaper, but I'm just not sure if that's really a good, good deal or not. So I figured I'd see if you had an opinion on that. Appreciate it, Jack.
0: Have a great day. Okay, uh, number one, I'm not a veterinarian and I'm not going to give medical advice on animals. Okay? I'm just going to give you an opinion. Uh, right now we use HarpGuard because it's the best priced commercial product that we can get. Um we go round and round with our vet every freaking year. They want to blood test our animals to see if they have heartworms before they prescribe heartworm medication, even though I'm giving them the last one in their prescription as I'm telling them I need the next one. And I think veterinarians, and I think if you're a vet and you're listening, you, I want you to hear this. I think you're scamming the shit out of people when you're doing this. If the animal has been continuously on this medication... And you're telling people you need to test for it. You're full of shit. And you say, "Well, it doesn't always work or whatever." You're full of shit. Okay. If the if the animals on it right now today, and I want a dose for them next month, and you're telling me you need to test for it to be safe, you're lying to me. And that's why I'm thinking of doing exactly what this this person's asking about. I know Nick Ferguson does this with his dogs because we were. T- I've been I've been pissy with my vet over this for a long damn time, and. Uh, so, because it's an expensive test, it's like over a hundred bucks to test for this stuff, and I think it's a cash cow for veterinarians. I think it's that add-on that they just, you know, they make that extra buck off of. And you can write me and tell me I'm wrong, but I'm sorry, I don't buy it. I just don't. And you may be even you may even believe it because you may have been trained that way. But I've seen that happen with a lot of professions. The person doing it is ripping you off. They don't even know they're ripping you off. They think they're, they're t- the guy that writes up service write- write-ups for you at the the tire shop, doesn't know he's ripping you off. He was trained to rip you off. And they've been trained for so long, the person doing the training didn't know. And they believe what they're doing. So I'm willing to accept that. But I know how stuff works, and this is how this stuff works, right? So Nick Ferguson's here, and he looks at this as a different brand. I don't remember what it was. It was more of a tablet one. And it had a single ingredient where the heart guard has two. And it was obviously effective, and people still obviously use it. We went to the soft chews because my big baby-ass German Shepherd Max won't eat the tablets. And I have to basically talk them into eating the little soft chews. And, but Nick, when he looks at the tablets, goes, yeah, I just use whatever this uh, medication was that you can buy for cattle, and I just use X amount per pound, right, which is the dosage thing, which is what's, you know, they, they don't get that accurate with the little chews because it's, for dogs, 50 to 100 pounds, give one a month. So you can actually be more precise. So he picks up the label and he shows me the label. And it's the same, like what he's talking about, is the exact same ingredient. And I should be doing this. But I resist doing this because it's one more thing to worry about. And I'm okay paying for the medication. It is a lot cheaper to do the other way. But if we buy, see, we buy our medication online, but we need the prescription from the doctor to buy it. And the doctor's pissy because we won't buy it from him, but he's charging me three times as much as I can buy it online for. And I'm like, I have three dogs, three cats. We come to you for everything. We board with you. You get enough of my money. And, and I'm, a, I'm a bit fed up, but I'm ready to take them to this, to this protocol. I found a forum thread. I'm not endorsing it, but it discusses this. And there's people talking about it. I've done this for years and explaining it very well. If you're a vet that could be honest about this subject, I'd like to hear from you. In fact, I'll throw out a thing right now. I'd actually like to add a vet to the expert council, especially a vet that doesn't just do canine and feline, but canine, feline, bovine, etc. Somebody like that. I'd love to add a veterinarian to the expert council. I think it'd be very valuable. But it's much like I also would like to add a law enforcement officer. Uh, I think to the expert council. I've been kicking that around, but I want an honest one, which is probably someone that's retired, They that can speak speak completely freely at this point. Um, I want that. I want. I don't want this shit like, well, you have to because it's different. It's not. That's like saying I have to buy Benadryl, right, and I can't buy the generic. Well, you can't administer it by yourself. Well, I can do math. I can read. I have a calculator. You could overdose. I could overdose if I gave him three of the damn ones you give me, too, if I'm stupid. If I don't follow the schedule. And I'll tell you another thing about heartworm medication that pisses me off. Not so much here. But there are parts of the country where a mosquito couldn't fly 15 seconds without dying, three to four months out of the year. And this medication is a toxin. And in those climates, dogs should not be on that medication during those months because there's no reason. You could start a little bit early and end a little bit late to make sure you're in that no-mosquito zone. But there ain't no mosquitoes flying around in freaking you know, New York in January. There isn't. I've been there. I've seen it, or I haven't seen it to be exact, right? So I think that there's a case for that too. Um, where in the summer in New York, there's more mosquitoes than you can shake a stick at. You like, I'd rather be here than there, mosquito-wise. But that's my basic opinion is. If you find, and I'm not going to give any names of any medications, I'm not going to give any direct advice, but I, I believe if you do your research, you talk to people that know, and most farmers and ranchers that have guardian dogs and stuff like this, since they're buying it for their cattle, they're already doing it. You find someone like that to give you some advice and guidance, I believe your dog is just as protected, and you're going to stop getting ripped off by your freaking veterinarian. That's my opinion, but again, I'm going to couch that with, but I haven't done it. So, so I mean, I look at my dogs as family. But I'm telling you where my vet's pushing me is this bullshit about wanting to run a hundred dollars plus test on all three dogs every year to prescribe a medication they're already on. And and, and when vets get pissy that people do this shit, you're why. Just my thoughts. Let's take another one.
3: Hey Jack, this is Dennis from the Puget Sound area of Washington. I have a question about growing field crops as staples, low maintenance crop stuff. Um, I have access to a food bank plot of land, I think it's about five acres, that they're no longer using, and they're allowing people to grow food there for um, personal use, not for selling. Um, mm-hmm. I'm a pretty busy guy, so I'm hoping I could find a staple crop or something that would take very little maintenance uh, to grow there, like potatoes or a field of Jerusalem artichokes, I'm not really sure. Something uh, low-maintenance, I can visit rarely, and that it'll get me a uh, nice yield that I can store for a while. All right, Jack, thank you for everything you do, and I look forward to hearing uh, your response. Bye.
0: Well, um, I-, I guess the thing is, do you get enough rain that you don't need to irrigate? Or is there some way that there's irrigation available that can be put on a timer and automated? Because if either of those are the case, then there are some options that you have. Um, Long-time crop that, that was grown because it needed so little maintenance, as long as it got enough water and fertility, you, know, you plant it, and then you harvest it is pretty much how it goes, is corn. Now that depends on where you're at, what kind of pests are there, you know, things like that. But there's some old varieties of heirloom corn uh, that have really thick husks, and uh, you know, you're talking more of a shell corn now that you need to make cornmeal or something like that, of old flint, old heirloom flint corns and stuff like that would be one. And if you did that, you could go the whole Three Sisters garden route. This, people don't understand what Three Sisters garden is. You see these people, and they got their little freaking green beans, right? And their, their, their bantam white sweet corn, and their little zucchini squashes, and they're the Three Sisters garden. That's not what Native Americans did with Three Sisters. What they did is they, it was basically a form of culture. They got a whole bunch of branches and shit like that, small stuff, smashed it all up, piled a whole bunch of dirt up, made a mound on it. And then they took the corn and they planted, this was old school corn, right? This is hard kernel corn. And they planted a great big circle, and then they planted their beans, and these were shell beans. Beans that you just let go until they're dry, and then you shell them, like a dry bean, and the, and the squash was like pumpkin-like squashes, winter squashes, like a butternut or a, a pumpkin of some kind. And then that way they could plant these little mounds all over the place and, you know, get them going. But once they were gotten to get going and they, the places they did this had the rainfall to support these three species, when they were done, they would go in and the, the corn's dry on, the, on the, 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 the cob and you'd just pull it off. And the beans are dried and wrapped up around the corn. You just pull them off and they were all storable. And of course, winter squash stores really well. And you're getting two yields from the squash. You're getting the squash itself and you're getting the seeds. That's an angle you could try, but it may not, I mean, you gotta figure out what works for you. Um, the one you mentioned, Jerusalem artichokes, that's about as easy as it gets. That's not just easy during the growing season. If this place ain't that far away from you, you don't need to go harvest at all. You can go by if you want enough for this week, and you put a big pile of straw mulch over the bed and after it dies back. You can go buy and pick up just pull enough out of the ground for this week or the next two weeks, and there'll be enough in the ground it'll come back next year. That's kind of how I use them here. I pull them out as I need them. I don't like the first year, I pulled them a bunch out, and I had a lot of them go bad in the refrigerator. I had too many to deal with. So that, that's, that's an advantage there. Another crop that I don't really recommend leaving through the year like that, but it stores very well that's low maintenance is sweet potato. Sweet potato, you make your own slips, you save a few potatoes every year to make your slips every year. I've got them growing right behind me now in a pan on my on my shelf. And we're putting sweet potatoes out that are from some, some ones that I did leave in the ground last year because here you can get away with doing it. Um, that would be another good crop. So what you're really looking for is a crop that has like, it doesn't have a lot of, like if you're growing tomatoes, you're going to end up you know with tomatoes at different stages of development and growth one way you could mitigate that is there are certain tomatoes that are called determinate varieties they get to a certain size and they kind of produce all at once uh, like Roma's tend to do that uh, San Marzano, San Marzano Roma I think, is the one that does best of that. So you can find certain tomato varieties that are really more of canning varieties, and that's why they're called that because they kind of all come and they produce, and they really don't—they're kind of lackluster for the rest of the year. But you know, do you really want to do that? Any bean that's a shell bean would be another thing you could do. My problem with that is, unless you're on a really large scale, there's so much energy that grows into, goes into growing beans like that. They, it's cheaper just to buy them, even if you're buying organic. It's really a broad scale crop, that type of a bean. But you can do it. Uh, purple Holt peas, things like that. Very, very, you know, cow pea, all that stuff's very, very tough, very, very strong, very, very resilient. I mean, it grows here and reseeds itself. So those are things you can look at as well. Um, but I mean, you got to look at your ROI and is it really worth it? The, the thing about like sweet potato is, you know, one or two sweet potatoes and you make a hundred slips. And as long as it gets enough water, it's going to do well. And the only thing you really have to do is toward the end of the season, you want to stress it a little bit so it will give you a good tuber set. So those are my thoughts on that. Anybody, else, Any other ideas, come by the blog and uh, leave a comment in today's show notes. Let's take another one.
4: Hi, Jack. Blair from BC, Canada here. The question is in regards to managing some rental cabins and how to structure that. So, details, I've got... A neighbor who is, uh, got some land adjoining ours and he's gonna be putting in six small rental cabins for short-term rentals, which there's a good market for here in Golden BC. It's a small mountain town with good tourism, skiing, hiking, etc. So he's putting in these six cabins, and he's asked us if we'd be interested in managing them for him. Uh He's an old guy and not really good on the Internet and stuff like that, and he wants to be kind of hands-off. I asked him what he had in mind for structure, and he basically said he didn't really have an idea. So I think that leaves a good ad- advantage in our end in order to come up with a good plan and a structure that's advantageous to me and my wife. Uh, to make it lucrative for us, as well as good for him too, um, so six cabins. We're thinking if we rented them for a hundred bucks per night, we would easily fill them in the summer, probably as many days as we wanted, and in the winter, probably easily every weekend, maybe more. So, doing some quick math, it'd be we could probably guaranteed have them rented for one hundred and fifty days per year. Um, that's not. That's assuming we're not going to have any in the spring and fall shoulder seasons and, you know, a uh, pretty conservative estimate on 150 days per year. Um, so, yeah, just interested in hearing your thoughts about different ways to potentially structure the business that will take place between the owner and us and ways on making this advantageous for us as well as, you know, good good for him um, so that he's happy with it. Then also potentially some ideas on good ways to approach him to sell our plan to him and go from there thanks for your show and thanks for any advice you can provide see you.
0: okay let's assume that your number of 150 days is right at $100 a night you got $90,000 a year now you could do better but that's your baseline so then you got to say to yourself self out of out of that $90,000 how much money do I need to make this worth doing and how much money does he need to make this worth doing? And you kind got of start there. But I think what you've got to do, though, is you got to pin down here what exactly you're going to do. So you rent a cabin out. You don't just rent a cabin out. I sleep in the cabin for two days, and I'm in there being a slobbingly old man. And then I leave. Somebody's going to wash the linens, make the beds, all that stuff. Are you going to employ somebody to do that and manage them? Are you going to do that yourself? What is going to be provided? Is it just a cabin? Is there any kind of support and help these people get that are staying there? It's like, there's your cabin, bye-bye. All that stuff. And what you really need to do is sit down and draw up a proposal, a contract, proposed contract. This is what we agree to do. This is how we'll do it. This is what you're responsible for. Everything. So that when you go and and he says to you, well, why do you want this much? Well, what part of this do you want me to not do? And, you know, this is probably worth spending a couple hundred bucks for when you're done with it to have a lawyer look over it. I wouldn't do that before you present it. I would present it. I would hammer it out. And I'd say, now we're going to make sure that we haven't messed anything up so nobody misunderstands each other whatever, and we're gonna have a, I'll, I'll pay for it. We'll have a lawyer look at it and see if there's anything we've done wrong. And I think that makes a lot of sense, too. You have to have a written agreement in this situation or there will be misunderstandings. Plain and simple. One thing to think about, though, is the person drafting the contract. This is what people generally do not understand. It's a very important concept in contract law. You need to be extremely specific as to what you mean with no ambiguity whatsoever in every item when you're the drafter because ambiguity benefits the party that did not draw up the contract when there's a a dispute in a court of law. So if there's two ways it could be interpreted, and I drafted it, and you say you interpret it the other way, and a judge looks at it and says, I think it could be interpreted that way. Even if it's more likely that it would be interpreted the way that I meant it, he will side with you because there's case law that says that. That as the person that drafted it, it is my responsibility to be abundantly clear in what I mean and everything. So sometimes it makes sense to have the other party draft the contract. Because that, that kind of ambiguity, if there's any dis, you know, distractions or whatever, benefits you. So it's just something to think about. But I think it sounds like a cool, interesting opportunity. But I think you need to figure out how many hours you're going to put into it, what, if any, costs you're going to bear, how everything's going to work. And then you have to say, well, what's our time worth to do this? And then you need to be making at least that much. Because it's not a huge amount of money if you think about it from from a standpoint of being the landlord, ninety grand a year. What's it going to cost to build six of them? Is he going to build them cash out of pocket or is he going to finance them? You know, normally, in a, if it was me, and I know people think I hate debt, and I do, if it's the wrong kind of debt, but I would finance that because then then I'm not paying the debt, the tenants are. But then I need a cash roll you know, a a run rate that services the debt plus leaves me something plus pays you. And a little bit of my concern here is him coming to you and just saying, well, whatever you want. Just be careful with that. Make sure that whatever you want is exactly what you want then. And make sure he completely understands it. And and I think, you know, he said he's older. How much older? I think you need to have a discussion about, well, what happens if you die? Because if we end up, You know, making 30 grand a year off this, and we lose that opportunity, and we've adjusted things in our lives so that we can, then that that hurts us. That's like losing a job. You know, I'd be very ginger about that, you know, but it's something about, like, I would suggest that maybe that he might set things up if this goes right for a while. That maybe you inherit that piece of property with those on it, or you inherit the business that, or you are the business that runs it, and then whoever inherited it would at least have a business structure, something like that. This is, this is, you know what I'm going to say, right? Tax attorney and CPA, really. I mean, these, this is comp, this is more complex than it sounds, and you want to make sure it's done right. And a tax attorney, not so much right now. but, yeah. I mean, a CPA, not so much right now. But a tax attorney, yeah. Because the CPA thing is going to be on his side, right? Uh, a, a tax attorney may be able to look at this issue, from, issue for you from a legal standpoint, not just a tax standpoint, and be able to say, like, this is this is the things that are important. And I'm really not going there because you're in Canada and your tax laws and your, your accounting structure and all that is in laws and regulations and things are different. Um, but I definitely would try to do this, but those are the things to be thinking about, and I hope that helps. I know it's not the direct answer you probably wanted to hear. Let's take uh, – I think we got one more, and we're done for the day.
1: Hey, Jack. David from Indiana calling about your episode um, 1969 where you discussed Bitcoin at the end. Um, I'm asking about the infinitely fungible via fractions is what you said. And uh, that doesn't make sense to me because I didn't think that Bitcoin could be infinitely fractionalized. If it could, then that would mean that it, it would be an inflationary currency. So I thought it was limited to 18 divisions or something like that. If you could uh, please comment on that. Appreciate it. Thanks.
0: So let's start off with the first like misunderstanding here. The belief that if Bitcoin is infinitely fractionable, if it could go down to the cabillionth of, of a piece of Bitcoin, it would make it inflationary is completely uh, wrong. It's actually the fractionability of Bitcoin is what per, one of the things that prevents it from being an inflationary currency. Um, y- y- because you can make it into such small pieces, it, it doesn't ma- y- For it not to be inflationary, it has to be deflationary, right? Is it one or the other? No no currency in a fluid market is going to just hold its value and not go up or down. The uh, the so-called most stable money is gold and silver, what goes up and down all the time, relative to other commodities. Okay, So it's either going to go up in value or down in value. In fact, if you have an inflationary dollar, and if you had a dead solid Bitcoin that didn't go up or down, it would go up as the dollar devalued itself. Got it? Right? So it has to be one or the other. For that to work since a Bitcoin becomes stronger and stronger and stronger think about it if you could only spend a quarter of a Bitcoin well right now it's about 250 bucks a little bit more actually. Well now you can't use it because there's only so the more the smaller the piece we can use, the more it can be deflationary the, the, It could be worth you know ten thousand dollars and if I can break off a ten thousandth I can I can still spend a dollar. You got it, okay. So that that has nothing to do with inflation at all. Now, is it really infinitesimally fractionable? No, but yes, okay. It is fractionable out to eight decimal places, but decimal places are exponential, right? It's not eight. You can't. That doesn't mean you can fraction it eight times. That means you can fraction it at point one. Or 0.01, or 0.001, or 0.00000001. Okay, when we go out eight decimals, so we go out seven zero point seven zeros and one one. We're out to a millionth, one millionth of a bitcoin. It's called a satoshi. Okay, so can we fraction a bitcoin down to one ten millionth? No, but is that infinite in a practical sense? I believe that it is. Is it infinite in a practical sense for a thousand years? I don't know, probably, but I'll be dead long before that, so I don't really care. So it would be like, let's say to you, you came to me and you said, I want this piece of land that you have, Jack. I want to build a house on it. all." I say, you know what? Actually, I don't want to sell that land. What I want to do is I want to lease that land to you. But it'll be like you own it. But I'll have cash flow forever because of it. And we'll put a thing in there that if the taxes go up, that's the only rise in the price of the lease that you'll ever have. We, out of this one block of land that, that I'm going to lease to you, um, if the taxes go up on the rest of my land, it doesn't matter, but when, it, when they go up as a whole, you'll get a, a statement every year, and basically your lease will only go up by the tax increase. That's it. And it's a, it's, it's, it's a lifetime lease. And you say... I'll do the deal. So I draw the contract up, and you look at it, and it says 99-year lease. And you say to me, you said it would be lifetime, and you're 30. Is it a lifetime lease? If you go to prison, and you're being sentenced to life, but you actually got 200 years, and they mean it, is it a lifetime? See what I'm saying? So like, if we can fraction something down to one millionth of a piece of it. If Bitcoin went to a million dollars, a coin, it's right, whoa, that would be great, right? But don't bet on it. We could still fraction it down to a dollar. And by the time we got there, if it la- if everything lasts that long and there's still a dollar's that far out and everything lasts that long, then a dollar probably buy less than a penny does today anyway. So, it is infinitely... From a practical standpoint, again, you can go down to a millionth of a Bitcoin. For instance, right now, if you wanted to spend $1 in Bitcoin, you would spend 0. 00084. 0. .00084. Bitcoin. We're going out at that point um, five spaces. And we're at about 1200 bucks in change for Bitcoin right now or something like that. Or 1100 change something in that neighborhood, and we're fractionalizing down to a dollar. To to get out to point zero, 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 one, eight points out, we would have to have Bitcoin priced at a million dollars. And we're already five of the seven out, and you see how that exponential thing happens. It's the same as going up, where, you know, I think people think a billion dollars is like a hundred million. A billion is a thousand million. That's kind of going in reverse the other direction. So when you understand that, And then you add to it the fact that the total amount of Bitcoin in existence is known, and the amount being produced every year will go down from now until forever to the last Bitcoin's mind. And you understand the deflationary nature of the currency, and you understand how long it's been around. This is not the beginning anymore, right? And and, I mean, I want you to understand when Bitcoin first came out and it got to dollar parity, where one Bitcoin was worth $1, it was a big deal. And the naysayer said, Ed, just never going to last. That was years ago. So we know it's got legs. We know it's got longevity. We know it's being used. Major brands are accepting it as payment. Yes, they're immediately converting it to dollars. I don't care. That's fine. There's tax guidance against it. There's entire businesses built on it. It's not going away. It doesn't mean it can't fail, but the dollar can fail too, right? Well, one currency is inflationary—the dollar. In, in other words, you know if everything goes to plan, your dollar will be that your dollar today. Let's not worry about since 1913. Your dollar today, say it's worth a dollar, is going to be worth 96 to 98 cents at the end of the year. Your Bitcoin may be worth more or less, but its overall trend, by math, says it has to be worth more, unless the system fails in some way. And I'm not saying it can't. So don't go put your kid's college fund in Bitcoin or some shit like that. I'm just saying that's how it works. And that's why it's worked in spite of all the people saying it can't work. And every single time a person says, I'm going to start using Bitcoin. I'm going to start buying Bitcoin. I'm going to save Bitcoin. I'm going to take payments in Bitcoin. There's more people using a commodity that's getting smaller and smaller. And there's only one thing that can happen that, that has to increase its value or at least has to hold its value. And it's why, you know, I don't have my retirement account in Bitcoin, but I have a pretty significant amount of Bitcoin and Ether because of the, because of math, right? And I'll remind you guys, if you want to start with Bitcoin and Ether, the easiest way is to set up a Coinbase account. There's a banner on the survival podcast website. You click that banner and when you fund your Bitcoin account from your, your bank account, you get $10 of Bitcoin for free. Um so it's a pretty win win situation right there and i've been wa- watch- I, I get t- I'll, I'll be honest i I'm an affiliate that's why I do it I get ten bucks in bitcoin too when you do that now this is what's funny i've been watching all year they send me my ten dollars of bitcoin I'm getting less and less bitcoin every time I get paid because the value keeps going up i've never been so happy to get less of something in my life because my overall account balance keeps going up so it's just something I really recommend that you, at least you know I look at it this way, a lot of you guys are silver stackers. And you've got, you know, a thousand ounces of silver or something like that stacked at this point. You know, you got 16 grand of silver. Maybe start stacking some some cryptocurrency now. Like you kind of did that. You get to the point where it actually starts to become a problem. I I, am just saying. It's just my basic advice. Anyway, and you'll help the show. I mean, you'll I get $10 worth of Bitcoin. I'll tell you right now, I don't spend my Bitcoin. I don't. (laughs) Every once in a while, if somebody wants to be paid in Bitcoin, and I'll buy at least what I spent right away when I do that, um, which is one of these myths like, well, you'll hold on it, you'll never spend it. Well, if somebody wants it, I'll spend it, and I'll just buy it, you know, I can buy it as quick as I can spend it, so whatever. Anyway, um, the other way you can help us is by doing your Amazon shopping through tspaz.com, T-S-P-A-Z.com. Uh, that's where I do all my Amazon reviews. It's actually just a page on the Survival Podcast website. Uh, but it redirects you straight to there. There's a link. You can click it. You'll see the Amazon deals of the day. You can do your Amazon shopping and not buy anything I recommend, and you still help us because we're an affiliate, and that's how the affiliate program works. Uh, today, my item of review for you is one I've been holding off for almost two months to do because I wanted to make sure I was making a good recommendation. It's the Muckster 2 low-climbing shoe from Muck Boots. I use it as a farm shoe, okay, and I'm going to tell you how I ended up with it. It wasn't what I wanted at first. I had this boot that I used to buy from Cabela's. In fact, I bought it once many years ago and about 3 or 4 years ago I swapped it in because it's a lifetime warranted boot. And I loved it. It was comfortable out of the box and I I'm not you know, I mean sure Cabela's when they say lifetime warranty they're, they're figuring a guy's going to go hunting, you know, during hunting season and use them or something like that. Not some farmer is going to be out there, you know, trashing them 365 days a year, which is how I wore them. They finally sprung a leak. Yeah, I can put shoe goo on them, but they're, they're worn out. You know, the arch support's not there. I mean, how long can you wear a pair of freaking shoes before it's worn out? Um, so I went on a quest to find a low, rubber, waterproof boot, shoe, call it whatever you want to. Because I'm always in water here. I'm always in the mud. Just jump in the pools and stuff. And you're out there wearing your tennis shoes and then just see your socks are wet and you're not happy and you got duck poop water. You got it. But it's Texas, it's hot, and I don't want boots up to my calves if I don't have to. And I don't have deep water here, except in the swales during certain times where it rains and all. I just don't go in them. I just have like this mucky, muck boot environment. So I started looking, and I don't know, I always thought muck boots were overpriced. Not overpriced, overhyped. So I like, well, what's the competitors? And I found a company called Boggs. And they had a boot called the Urban Farmer. And I looked at the reviews on it, and they were good. And I looked at the way it was built, and I said, that shoe is built tough. So I ordered a pair, and I got them, and I tried to stick my foot in there, and I already knew it wasn't going to work. But I crammed my right foot into it, and it felt like somebody put a vice on my foot. I don't know what the hell Boggs is doing, because they build a hell of a. T- I could just look at it and tell you it's a tough shoe. But it hurt like hell. I could barely get it on my foot. I took it off my foot. The other one never came out of the box. I stuck it back in the box. I printed a return label back to Amazon. It went, and I looked at the Muckster, too. Also very good reviews. Look very well built. They came. I do have a little bit wider feet than normal, but not. I'm not you know out buying you know, triple D's or whatever or something like that for my shoes. I usually can buy an off-the-shelf shoe. It may be a little tight at first. Of all. When I put these on, they were a little tight around the ankle. But they didn't hurt. They were a little uncomfortable. They weren't my Cabela's uh, camo ones, but, I mean, they felt okay. Enough so that I was willing to risk, you know, wearing them and not being able to return them. So I wore them for like a week. They broke in pretty good. I've had them for two months now. They're comfortable as shit. And they're tough, and they work, and they give me what I'm looking for. So this is not something for everybody, okay? But I think if you have a lot of interaction with animals and mud and muck and things like that, and you don't need but just to protect your feet. You don't need to be up the ankle. And especially if you're in hotter climates, they're great. And the big thing that I wanted a pair like this for, because, yeah, there's all, I have, you know, plain old leather boots that are, you know, done up and, and hiking leather shoes that are done up with, uh, you know, oiled up real good and, or thinsulate and, and, or whatever, Gore-Tex, I'm sorry, and they don't leak. But you got to lace them up. You're in and out of the house. You're dealing with livestock. You don't want to track crap in your house and mud in your house. You get yelled at by your wife. So what's nice to be able to get to the door and just kick them off. And that's what I was looking for, a slip-on, low-cut, waterproof boot that was built well that I wouldn't have to replace every five days. And this is this is the best thing on the market. Full disclosure, if Cabela's brings back my other boot, I would go back to it. They, they were the best. I mean, I looked at the, the – they're worn out, but the tread on them looks brand new. And that's that's unusual with a product like that. I don't know. Like other than maybe that lifetime, well, take away the lifetime warranty then. You know, <laughs> or call it something different. Say it's continue. They, they haven't brought like a replacement back or anything. So the Muckster two is the best I can find. I have a link at the bottom in the P.S. to the uh, to the ladies version of this boot. They have a ladies version. It's probably just narrow foot or whatever. Uh, you guys have some nifty colors, ladies, some lavender and stuff like that in the the, the material part. Uh, around the, the, uh, the ankle but they don't have the camo pattern in ladies thing what i said in my review is i guess the people at muck boots are not in touch with the fact some of you ladies are damn fine huntresses i know some women that are damn good hunters and i always buy camo my stuff like this because i use these hunting as well they're pretty good for that that's what the cabello ones were really great about too because rubber boots guys when you're hunting deer rubber don't hold your scent so you're not leaving scent everywhere you go on the ground when you have road boots on. Just a little extra thing there. All right. With that, let's talk about the song of the day today. And uh song is uh, Wheel in the Sky by Journey. And this this year was really the year that Journey came into their own. Steve Perry uh, joined the band this year as their new lead singer. And uh, they had, two I think, two top 100 hits off of uh, the album Infinity. This made them a... A major, major success. And there's different views about what this song's about. There's a lot of people that say this is a biblical song, and it's about Elijah and seeing fire in the sky. And stuff like that. But this song is actually a very common theme from the time and for Journey, uh, and it's still a common theme for a lot of bands and their music today. It's gone more to the country bands and country artists today with this theme. This is about what it's like on the road not being home. Um, that, that's, that's what this really is I mean there's a lot of Jackson's Brown, Jackson Brown music that has that theme in it too um, uh, other people from the time Dan Fogelberg uh, a lot of these artists especially in the 70s that were in the rock uh, the, the, the stadium rock and even the, the more soft stuff like Fogelberg etc uh, James Taylor and all had these songs that were about what it's like not being home And wanting to be home. Listen, winter is here again, O Lord. Haven't been home in a year or more. It's pretty clear. I hope she holds on a little longer. She sent a letter on a long summer day made of silver, not of clay. I've been running down this dusty road. Wheel in the sky keeps on turning. Keeps on turning. I don't know where I'll be tomorrow. Wheel in the sky keeps on turning. It's actually a very short song, right? I'll read the rest of the lyrics to you. I've been trying to make it home. Got to make it before too long. I can't take this very much longer. I'm stranded in the sleet and rain. Don't think I'm ever going to make it home again. The morning sun is rising. It's kissing the day. A wheel in the sky keeps on turning. I don't know where I'll be tomorrow. Ooh, wheel in the sky keeps on turning. The wheel in the sky is the sun, guys. It's about the time passing and not being home. Uh, but I, I think this is one of these bands that people don't realize how big they were at the time. Even people that live through it kind of forget them in, in a way. I had an album that had this song on. It had another song very much like this song from the theme standpoint, though it was a lot softer of a song, called Faithfully. Highway run into the midnight sun. Wheels go round and round, right? Lost without you. About being away from the person that you love. And more of that was happening at this time in history because people were more mobile than ever before. Airline tickets were finally affordable. Uh, more and more people had jobs where they traveled for a living and things like that through the 70s. My my father-in-law, who recently passed away during this time, was traveling around the country for business. I did a lot of that myself. I understand this feeling. Any of us who have traveled have. But how big were they? They were so big, they had their own Atari video game. And as a kid, yours truly, Jack Spirico, played the Atari video game Journey. I didn't pick it out. I really didn't. didn't. It was one of those things you got for like a birthday present, and it was kind of not that great of a game, but I did play it quite a bit because when I got it, I didn't have that many games for my old Atari 2600 yet. And you were the four band members, and you had to run through groupies and stuff like that and get out of the stadium. Uh, and, and, And there were roadies that could help you and stuff like that. And if you got all four out, you won the game, right? And It wasn't that hard of a game to win. But Journey had their own Atari game, um, it's a good song. I like. It's not my favorite Journey song. I think. I think Faithfully is probably my favorite Journey song. I'd, I'd have to think about that a little more. But this is one of like their real first breakout hits, and it definitely typifies music and sentiment of the year nineteen seventy eight. With that, this has been Jack Spirko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Help me figure out how to live, live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't.